Book 1, Chapter 16 of The Heavenly Twins. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michelle McFarland, Ballarat, Australia. The Heavenly Twins by Sarah Grand. Book 1, Chapter 16. When breakfast was over at Frelingay next morning, and the young people had left the table, Mrs. Frayling helped herself to another cup of coffee, and solemnly opened Evadne's last letter. The coffee was cold, for the poor lady had been waiting, not daring to take the last cup herself, because she knew that the moment she did so, her husband would want more. The emptying of the urn was the signal which usually called up his appetite for another cup. He might refuse several times, and even leave the table amiably, so long as there was any left. But the knowledge or suspicion that there was none set up a sense of injury, unmistakably expressed in his countenance, and not to be satisfied by having more made immediately, although he invariably ordered it just to mark his displeasure. He would get up and ring for it emphatically, and would even sit with it before him for some time after it came but would finally go out without touching it, and be, as poor Mrs. Frayling mentally expressed it, oh dear, quite upset for the rest of the day. On this occasion, however, the pleasure of a wholly new grievance left no space in his fickle mind for the old-worn item of irritation, and he never even noticed that the coffee was done. Dear George sat beside Mrs. Frayling. She kept him there in order to be able to bestow a stray pat on his hand or make him some other sign of that maternal tenderness of which she considered the poor dear fellow stood so much in need. Mr. Frayling sat at the end of the table reading a local paper with one eye, as it were, and watching his wife for her news with the other. A severely critical expression sat singularly ill upon his broad face, which was like a baked apple, puffy and wrinkled and red and there was about him a queerly pursed-up air of settled opposition to everything, which did duty for both the real and spurious object of his attention. Mrs. Frayling read the letter through to herself, and then she put it down on the table and raised her handkerchief to her eyes with a heavy sigh. "'Well, what does she say now?' Mr. Frayling exclaimed, throwing down the local paper and giving way to his impatience openly. Dear George was perfectly cool. She says, Mrs. Frayling enjoined between two sniffs, that Major Cahoon isn't good enough, and she won't have him. Well, I understand that, at all events, better than anything else she has said, Major Cahoon observed, almost as if a weight had been removed from his mind. And I am quite inclined to come to terms with her for I don't care much myself for a young lady who gets into hysterics about things that other women think nothing of. Oh, don't say think nothing of, George, Mrs. Frayling deprecated. We lament and deplore, but we forgive and endure. It comes to the same thing, said Major Cahoon. A big dog which sat beside him, with its head on his knee, thumped his tail upon the ground here and whined sympathetically and he laid one hand caressingly upon his head, while he twirled his big blonde moustache with the other. He was fond of children and animals, 
and all creatures that fawned upon him and were not able to argue if they disagreed with him or resented if he kicked them actually or metaphorically speaking not that he was much given to that kind of thing he was agreeable naturally as all pleasure-loving people are only when he did lose his temper that was the way he showed it he would cut a woman to the quick with a word and knock a man down but both ebullitions were momentary as a rule it was really too much trouble to cherish anger and just then he was thinking quite as much about his moustache as about his wife it had once been the pride of his life but had come to be the cause of some misgivings for heavy moustaches had gone out of fashion in polite society mr fraylick followed up the last remark this is very hard on you cahoon very hard he declared pushing his plate away from him and i may say that it is very hard on me too but it just shows you what would come of the higher education of women why they'd raise some absurd standard of excellence and want to import angels from eden if we didn't come up to it major cahoon looked depressed yes mrs frailing protested shaking her head she says her husband must be a christ-like man she says men have agreed to accept christ as an example of what a man should be and asserts that therefore they must feel in themselves that they could live up to his standard if they chose there now mr frailing exclaimed triumphantly that is just what i said a christ-like man indeed what absurdity will women want next i don't know what to advise cahoon i really don't can't you order her mrs frailing suggested order her how can i order her she belongs to major cahoon now he retorted irritably but with a fine conservative regard for the rights of property and this is the way she keeps her vow of obedience major cahoon muttered oh but you see the poor misguided child considers that she made the vow under a misapprehension mrs frailing explained her maternal instinct acting on the defensive when her offspring's integrity was attacked and making the position clear to her don't you think dear to her husband that if you asked bishop he would talk to her the bishop mr frailing ejaculated with infinite scorn i know what women are when they go off like this once they set up opinions of their own there's no talking to them why haven't they gone to the stake for their opinions she wouldn't obey the whole bench of bishops in her present frame of mind and if they condescended to talk to her they would only confirm her belief in her own powers she would glory to find herself opposing what she calls her opinions to theirs oh the child is mad mrs frailing wailed i've said it all along she's quite mad is there any insanity in the family major cahoon asked looking up suspiciously none none whatever mr frailing hastened to assure him there has never been a case in fact the women on both sides have always been celebrated for good sense and exceptional abilities for women of course and several of the men have distinguished themselves as you know that does not alter my opinion in the least mrs frailing put in evadne must be mad she's worse i think major cahoon exclaimed in a tone of deep disgust she's worse than mad she's clever 
You can do something with a mad woman. You can lock her up. But a clever woman's the devil. And I'd never have thought it of her, he added regretfully. Such a nice, quiet little thing as she seemed, with hardly a word to say for herself. You wouldn't have imagined that she knew what views are, let alone having any of her own. But that is just the way with women. There's no being up to them. That is true, said Mr. Frayling. Well, I don't know where she got them, Mrs. Frayling protested, for I am sure I haven't any. But she seems to know so much about everything, she declared, glancing at the letter. At her age, I knew nothing. I can vouch for that, her husband exclaimed. He was one of those men who oppose the education of women might and main, and they jeer at them for knowing nothing. He was very particular about the human race when it was likely to suffer by an injurious indulgence on the part of women, but when it was a question of extra port wine for himself, he never considered the tortures of gout he might be entailing upon his own hapless descendants. However, there was an excuse for him on this occasion, for it is not every day that an irritated man has an opportunity of railing at his wife's incapacity and the inconvenient intelligence of his daughter both in one breath. But how has Evadne obtained all this mischievous information? I cannot think how she could have obtained it, he ejaculated, knitting his brows at his wife in a suspicious way, as he always did when this importunate thought recurred to him. In such ordinary everyday matters as the management of his estate and his other duties as a county gentleman, and also in solid comprehension of the political situation of the period, he was by no means wanting. But his mind simply circled round and round this business of Evadne's like a helpless swimmer in a whirlpool, able to keep afloat, but with nothing to take hold of. The risk of sending the mind of an elderly gentleman of settled prejudices spinning down the ringing grooves of change at such a rate is considerable. During the day, he wandered up to the rooms which had been Evadne's. They were kept very much as she was accustomed to have them, but there was that something of bareness about them, and a kind of spick-and-spanness conveying a sense of emptiness and desertion, which strikes cold to the heart when it comes of the absence of someone dear. And Mr. Frayling felt the discomfort of it. The afternoon sunlight slanted across the little sitting-room falling on the backs of a row of well-worn books and showing the scars of use and abuse on them. Without deliberate intention, Mr. Frayling followed the ray and read the bald titles by its uncompromising clearness. Histology, pathology, anatomy, physiology, prophylactics, therapeutics, botany, natural history, ancient and outspoken history, not to mention the modern writers and the various philosophies, Mr. Frayling took out a work on sociology, opened it, read a few passages which Evadne had marked, and solemnly ejaculated, Good heavens! several times. He could not have been more horrified had the books been Mademoiselle de Maupin, Nana, La Terre, Madame Bovary, and Sappho. Yet, had women been taught to read the former and reflect upon them, our sacred humanity might have been saved sooner from the depth of degradation depicted in the latter. The discovery of these books was an adding of alkali to the acid of Mr. Frayling's disposition at the moment. 
and he went down to look for his wife while he was still effervescing. How did Evadne get them, he wanted to know. Mrs Frayling could not conceive. She had forgotten all about Evadne's discovery of the box of books in the attic and the sort of general consent she had given when Evadne worried her for permission to read them. She must be a most deceitful girl. I shall go and talk to her myself, Mr Frayling concluded. And doubtless, if only he had had a pair of wings to spread, he would presently have appeared sailing over the cathedral into the close at Morning Quest, portly bird, in a frock coat, tall hat, and a very bad temper. But, poor gentleman, he really was an object for compassion. All his ideas of propriety and the natural social order of the universe were being outraged, and by his favourite daughter too, the one whom everybody thought so like him. And in truth, she was like him, especially in the matter of sticking to her own opinion, just the very thing he had no patience with, for he detested obstinate people. He said so himself. He did not go, however. Having preparations to make and a train to wait for gave him time to reflect, and, perceiving that the interview must inevitably be of a most disagreeable nature, he decided to send his wife next day to reason with her daughter. Mrs Frayling came upon Evadne unawares, and the shock it gave the girl to see her mother all miserably agitated and worn with worry was a more powerful point in favour of the success of the latter's mission than any argument would have been. The poor lady was handsomely dressed, and of a large presence calculated to inspire awe in inferiors unaccustomed to it. She was a well-preserved woman, with even teeth, thick brown hair, scarcely tinged with grey, and a beautiful, soft, transparent pink and white complexion. And Evadne had always seen her in a state of placid content, never really interrupted except by such surface squalls as were caused by having to scold the children, or the shedding of a few sunshiny tears, and had thought her lovely. But when she entered now, and had given her daughter the corner of her cheek to kiss for form's sake, she sat down with quivering lips and watery eyes all red with crying, and a broken-up aspect generally, which cut the girl to the quick. "'Oh, mother!' Evadne cried, kneeling down on the floor beside her and putting her arms about her. "'Grieves me deeply to see you so distressed.' But Mrs Frayling held herself stiffly, refusing to be embraced, and presenting a surface for the operation as unyielding as the figurehead of a ship. "'If you are sincere,' she said severely, "'you will give up this nonsense at once.' Evadne's arms dropped, and she rose to her feet, and stood, with fingers interlaced in front of her, looking down at her mother for a moment, and then up at the cathedral. Her talent for silence came in naturally here. "'You don't say anything because you know there is nothing to be said for you,' Mrs. Frayling began. "'You've broken my heart, Evadne. Indeed you have. "'And after everything had gone off so well, too. "'What a tragedy! "'How could you forget? "'And on the very day itself? "'Your wedding day, just think! "'Why, we keep ours every year. "'And all your beautiful presents, and such a trousseau!' I am sure no girl was ever more kindly considered by father, mother, friends, everybody. She was obliged to stop short for a moment, 
ideas, by which she was not much troubled as a rule, had suddenly crowded in so thick upon her when she began to speak that she became bewildered, and in an honest attempt to make the most of them all, only succeeded in laying hold of an end of each, to the great let and hindrance of all coherency, as she herself felt when she pulled up. "'Yes, you may well look up at the cathedral,' she began again, unreasonably provoked by Evadne's attitude. "'But what good does it do you? I should have supposed that the hallowed associations of this place would have restored you to a better frame of mind. I do feel the force of association strongly, Evadne answered, and that is why I shrink from Major Cahoon. People have their associations as well as places, and those that cling about him are anything but hallowed. Mrs. Frailing assumed an aspect of the deepest depression. I never heard a girl talk so in my life, she said. It is positively indelicate. It really is. But we have done all we could. Now, honestly, have you anything to complain of? Nothing, mother, nothing, Evadne exclaimed. Oh, I wish I could make you understand. Understand? What is there to understand? It is easy enough to understand that you have behaved outrageously. And written letters you ought to be ashamed of quoting a scripture, too, for your own purposes. I cannot think that you are in your right mind, Evadne. I really cannot. No girl ever acted so before. If only you would read your Bible properly and say your prayers, you would see for yourself and repent. Besides, what is to become of you? We can't have you at home again, you know. How we are, any of us, to appear in the neighbourhood if the story gets about and of course it must get about if you persist. I cannot think. And everybody said, too, how sweet you looked on your wedding day, Evadne. But I said, when those children changed clothes, it was unnatural and would bring bad luck. And there was a terrible gale blowing, too, and it rained. Everything went so well up to the very day itself. But since then, for no reason at all but your own wicked obstinacy, all has gone wrong. You ought to have been coming back from your honeymoon soon now, and here you are in hiding, yes, literally in hiding like a criminal, ashamed to be seen. It must be a terrible trial for my poor sister, Olive, and a great imposition on her good nature, having you here. You consider no one, and I might have been a grandmother in time too, although I don't so much mind about that, for I don't think it is any blessing to a military man to have a family. They have to move about so much. But, however, all that, it seems, is over. And your poor sisters, five of them, are curious to know what George is doing all this time at Frailingay and asking questions. You cannot have imagined my difficulties or you never would have been so selfish and unnatural. I had to box Barbara's ears the other day. I had indeed. And who will marry them now, I should like to know? If only you had turned Roman Catholic and gone into a convent, or died, or never been born. Oh dear, oh dear. Evadne looked down at her mother again. She was very white, but she did not utter a word. Why don't you speak? Mrs. Frailing exclaimed. Why do you stand there like a stone or a statue, deaf to all my arguments? Evadne sighed. Mother, I will do anything you suggest 
except the one thing. I will not live with Major Cahoon as his wife, she said. I thought so, Mrs. Fragling exclaimed. You will do everything but what you ought to do. It is just what your father says. Once you over-educate a girl, you can do nothing with her. She gives herself such airs. And you have managed to over-educate yourself somehow, although how remains a mystery. But one thing I am determined upon. Your poor sisters shall never have a book I don't know off by heart myself. I shall lock them all up. Not that it is much use, for no one will marry them now. No man will ever come to the house again to be robbed of his character as Major Cahoon has been by you. I am sure no one ever knew anything bad about him, at least I never did, whatever your father may have done, until you went and ferreted all those dreadful stories out. You are shameless, Evadne, you really are. And what good have you done by it all, I should like to know? When you might have done so much too. Mrs. Frailing paused here and Evadne looked up at the cathedral again, feeling for her pitifully. This new view of her mother was another terrible disillusion. And the more the poor lady exposed herself, the greater Evadne felt was the claim she had upon her filial tenderness. Why don't you say something? Mrs. Frailing recommenced. Mother, what can I say? If you knew what a time I have had with your father and your husband, you would pity me. I can assure you George has been so sullen there was no doing anything with him. And the trouble I have had, and the excuses I have made for you, I am quite worn out. He said if you were that kind of girl, you might go, and I've had to go down on my knees to him almost to make him forgive you. And now I will go down on my knees to you, she exclaimed, acting on a veritable inspiration and suiting the action to the word to beg you for the sake of your sisters and for the love of God not to disgrace us all. Oh, mother, no, don't do that. Get up, do get up. This is too dreadful, Evadne cried almost hysterically. Here I shall kneel until you give in, Mrs. Frailing sobbed, clasping her hands in the attitude of prayer to her daughter and conscious of the strength of her position. Evadne tried in vain to raise her. Her bonnet had slipped to one side, her dress had been caught up by the heels of her boots, and the soles were showing behind. Her mantle was disarranged. She was a figure for a farce. But Evadne saw only her own mother, shaken with sobs on her knees before her. Mother, mother, she cried, sinking into a chair and covering her face with her hands to hide the dreadful spectacle. Tell me what I am to do. Suggest something. If you would even consent, Mrs. Frailing began, gathering herself up slowly and standing over her daughter, if you would even consent to live in the same house with him until you get used to him and forget all this nonsense, I am sure he would agree. For he is dreadfully afraid of scandal of Adney. I never knew a man more so. In fact, he shows nothing but right and proper feeling, and you will love him as much as ever again when you know him better and get over all these exaggerated ideas. Do consent to this, dear child, for my sake. You shall have your own way in everything else, and I will arrange it all for you and get his written promise to allow you to live in his house quite independently, like brother and sister, 
as long as you like, and there will be no awkwardness for you whatever. Do, my child, do consent to this. And the poor old lady knelt once more and put her arms about her daughter and wept aloud. Evadne broke down. The sight of the dear face so distorted, the poor lips quivering, the kind eyes all swollen and blurred with tears, was too much for her. And she flung her arms round her mother's neck and cried, I consent, mother, for your sake, to keep up appearances. But only that, mother, you promise me, you will arrange all that. I promise you, my dear, I promise, Mrs. Frayling rejoined, rising with alacrity, her countenance clearing on the instant, her heart swelling with the joy and pride of a great victory. She knew she had done what the whole bench of bishops could not have done. Nor that most remarkable man, her husband, either, for the matter of that, and she enjoyed her triumph. As she had anticipated, Major Cahoon made no difficulty about the arrangement. I should not care a rap for an unwilling wife, he said. Let her go her way, and I'll go mine. All I want now is to keep up appearances. It would be a deuced nasty thing for me if the story got about. Fellows would think there was more in it than there is. But she will come round, said Mrs. Frayling. If only you are nice to her, and I'm sure you will be. She is sure to come round. Of course she will, Mr. Frayling decided, and Major Cahoon smiled complacently. He often asserted that there was no knowing women, but he took credit to himself for a superior knowledge of the sex all the same. End of Book One, Chapter Sixteen